Father, we do thank you for the name and the power of Jesus. And we thank you that this is love. Not that we first loved you, but that you loved us. And even while we were distant from you, you sent Christ into this world to redeem us. And for that, we are thankful. And we pray that this love would motivate us to be the hands and feet of Jesus, to continue his mission in this world. In Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. Uh, You'll see them in just a few moments. Thank you so much for joining us today as we conclude our message, our series, rather, in the book of Acts with a message entitled, Mud, Sweat, and Tears. So far in this series, we have looked at the pulse for mission. We've looked at the purpose for mission. We've looked at the people involved in mission. We've looked at the places to which mission goes. We've looked at the power of God that empowers mission. And today we're going to look at the practice of mission, the practice of mission. And to do that, we're going to turn to a passage in Acts chapter 9. This is an interesting story because this story is sandwiched between the conversion of Saul and the vision of Peter. This is a significant story. The way that Acts is pieced together is intentional. And so sandwiched between the conversion of Saul and the vision of Peter that takes the gospel to the Gentiles, there is this story about a lady with the name of Tabitha, who also has the Greek name Dorcas. That's because she lived in the Judean port city of Joppa. It was customary in those kind of cities where there would be a lot of Gentile traffic for a Hebrew to have a Greek name. What's unusual here is that we see it's a a lady. In fact, this lady's unique because in all of Acts, she is the only lady to be specifically, specifically called a disciple. That doesn't mean to say that there aren't other females who are disciples of Jesus. It just emphasizes the uniqueness and the significance of this story. And what it does is it basically sets the foundation to show us that how mission is going to be done in the world is modeled by this lady, Tabitha, Dorcas, whose name means gazelle. Kind of probably tells us the speed with which she went through life, her devotion to the call of God. And so this is what we read in Acts 9.36. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek, her name is Dorcas. And this is what we know. She was always doing good and helping the poor. Always doing good and helping the poor. One commentator by the name of Fernando writes this about Tabitha. Tabitha's care for the needy is presented as a model to the church. I will go so far as to say that a good test of Christian character is how people treat those considered unimportant in society, especially when no one is looking. Those of us who are leaders, leaders, Fernando says, should not be too influenced by the special concern showed to us. 
The true test of whether special concern, the true test is whether special concern is shown to the needy. Many Christian women have distinguished themselves in God's kingdom by their service to the needy. Some were widows who may not have had much strength and means left, but they did what they could, and they left their mark in the lives of the people they touched. You remember the first mention of widows in Acts is in Acts chapter 6. Widows are presented as those people who need food. But here they're also presented as those who respond to the needs of the world. Tabitha is an example. And Tabitha's story is used by many people to suggest that love is a verb. It's the idea captured by the phrase of that popular book, Love Does, an excellent book that shows us that to love but not to do anything isn't love at all. But we have to qualify that. While it is true that love does, the Bible says love is. You see, if love is not then it would be possible to practice love without ever being loving. Love is. And it's not just a verb because acting lovingly without being connected to the source isn't the Christian's experience. Tabitha is presented as a person who always does good. Some people will look at that and say, yeah, of course, because love does. But no, the motive for love is what's often missing when we simply describe love as a verb. If love is, love is just a verb, what do you make of this? If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain absolutely nothing. If I give myself away, lay down my very life, but I don't have love, then what good is it? Love, Paul says, is more than action. If love is not, it would be possible for each and every one of us to fulfill 1 John 3.18, but still not love. 1 John 3.18 says this, Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. It's possible for us to fulfill 1 John 3, 18, to love in words and love in deed, but still not be motivated by love. And the reason for that is simply this. God is love, 1 John 4, 8. And because he is, he did something. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. God is love. And he did something. And for that reason, love is not just a verb. Love is more than a verb. So when we think about the life of Tabitha always doing good, it is a mistake to think that love simply does. The Christian mission does. It's about good works. No, it's about more than that. Christian mission is an expression of a life that's been touched and transformed by the very love of God. Love is the reason we do. And this love 
enables us to overcome so many obstacles. And so Tabitha's life here is presented to us as an example, a challenging example. It was Mark Twain who once said, few things are harder to put up with than the annoyance of a good example. I want to say that what I've just said here right now in verse 36 is probably one of the biggest challenges to put into practice facing the evangelical church in America today. And so where I'm going to go in the rest of this message is going to be, unapologetically, a prophetic message that I'm going to touch on a couple of issues that are difficult to touch on, especially in the most conservative county in all of America. I'm not joking. But God has laid this message on my heart because if we lose the motivation to love, we lose the emerging generations. We lose the people who have never darkened the door of a church and never will unless we change. So, let's have a look at the rest of this story. The Bible says that we have been given the right to be called the children of God. And this Example of Tabitha challenges us to realize that with that right comes the responsibility to live as the children of God that we have become. And a quick glance at the New Testament would reveal that doing good and helping the poor were critical expressions of the early church. They need to be critical expressions of our lives too, not just to do good, but to express the love that we ourselves have received. And when we do that, people change, the world changes. Towns change, and this is what we see happening in Tabitha's life and as a result of it. But then something happens. Let's read the rest of the story from verse 37. About that time, she became sick. This is Tabitha and died. And her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa. So when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, that's about 11 miles away, they sent two men to him and urged him, please come at once. People went with them. And when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was with them. Peter sent them all out of the room. And then he got down on his knees and he prayed. Turning towards the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes. And seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called for the believers. Look at this. Especially the widows. And presented her to them alive. And this became known all over Joppa. And many people believed in the Lord. I find it very interesting here as I read this story that what Tabitha did actually came to light when they're all standing around a body. The widows told Peter everything that she had done. Now, I've presided over many funerals where the good the deceased did was expressed in a eulogy. Have you ever been there for that? Oftentimes, you, you, I preside over these funerals and I listen to this and I'm like, wow, this was an incredible person. But do you notice in Acts 9, it was the poor and the widows that did it? While eulogies from the rich and famous are impressive, words of gratitude from the poor, the unknown, the faceless are especially moving. 
See, it's one thing to be praised by the famous. It is quite another thing to be honored and missed by the poor, is it not? Now, I raise this observation because I believe that the mission of the church in America will be aided in the days to come by Christians who are willing to follow Tabitha's example. America is no longer a Christian nation. It is a post-Christian nation quickly becoming a pre-Christian nation. And if we want to show people the love of God, then we need to express the love of God. But simply expressing the love of God with, with this commitment to do good works misses the power of the love of God itself. And in order for this message to be correctly communicated, and in order for us not to lose the generations that have never heard of the name of Jesus, church, we have to change some of the things about our culture. We have to. Now, to get to my point, I want to take you on a journey of my experience of the first decade in America. I've lived in America 10 years now, and this has been an incredible blessing for me, and, and some of the American culture has really impacted on me and revealed to me how weak I really am. So, for example, one of the first lessons that I learned was Americans are really good at declining without explanation, declining without giving the detail. Hadn't been to America long. It was about three and a half weeks uh, after I came that my wife came. I was invited to so many meals because everybody was taking pity on me, thought he's going to be alone, no family. Let's give him a meal every night, meal every night. And it got to the point after about 10, 12, 13 days of this, I'm just like, I can't do this anymore. I just need some time. Have you got there? Any of you been like that? And so I had an invitation that started at something like 6.30, but I had another meeting at 6. And so I thought, okay, I'll decline that invitation because I've got another meeting. So I wrote to the person and I said, I'm really, thank you. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's really great for you to think of me, uh, but I can't. I've got another meeting. To which the person wrote back and said, oh, is that the meeting at 6 at the church? If it is, Paul's going, you can come there afterwards. And then I realized, hey, Americans are really good at declining without detail. It's true. My wife is really good at this now too. But for me as a Welshman, you just don't do that. It's really ignorant to tell people, no, I'm sorry. Because you see, what you do if you do that is where I come from, you just make them wonder what's wrong with me. And so I've always declined, always up until that point, declined with detail. And I still do it now. And some people just say, you don't need to tell me why. It's okay. Americans are really good at declining with detail or without detail. That is so tough for me. Another lesson I've learned is to express my discontent. Same period of time, I was invited to a restaurant. I think it was a Ruth Chris restaurant. Never been there before. And they ordered, uh, they said, ah, steak. And I'm looking at the prices of these things. I'm like, man, oh, man, this is expensive. And, you know, when you order your steak in Ruth Chris, it's really thick, right? Well, they asked me how I wanted my steak done. And I'm like, well done. And the people looked at me and said, wow, you must be a Philistine. I'm like, yeah. No pink, no blood. So anyway, I order the meal, order the steak, comes back, and I cut into the thing, and it's a little bit of pink, and it's a little bit of blood. Folks, it freaked me out. And the people I'm with must have seen what it was like because they looked at me and said, is your steak okay? And I'm like, well, it's a little bit more pink. It's got a little bit more blood than I'm used to. Without hesitation, they put up their hands. They called the waiter over, and they said, excuse me, you ordered this thing. For, well done. It's pink and it's bloody. Please do it properly. I was so embarrassed. I was, I was like, 
Somebody said to me, well, what do you do in Britain if that happens? You just don't go to the restaurant again, and you box the meat up to take it home, and you cook it properly. That's basically what you do where I come from. <laughs> Another time I went, and somebody asked for a reduction on the bill, and they tipped less. This is just horrifying to me. You don't do that where I come from. See, where I come from, if I do that, it's called being fussy. Or oh, get this, acting like an American. You guys have a reputation for this. So, so some of these things, that just the, the kind of cultural challenges that I've learned, I've just recognized, look, there's no right and wrong in this. It's just different. And these things have been great. These things have been easy. But folks, some of it hasn't been great, and some of it hasn't been easy. See, I'm a product of my upbringing. I'm a product of my age. And while I recognize that the Christian faith is a supercultural faith that implants itself in every culture, all of us have these values and these ways of thinking and acting that are actually driven more by our upbringing than they are by the Scriptures. And when the two collide, that is when God plucks you up, and some of you have experienced this if you're in the military, God plucks you up and He transfers you into a different country with a different language, with different cultures, you just recognize, wow, some of these people are really weird. One of the big challenges for me on this has been hunting, guns. Yeah, I'm going to go there today. And please extend me grace as I do. Where I, a confession, I've never held a gun and I've never fired one. Okay? Yeah, I'm a Philistine, right? Still live in the day of spears and bows and arrows. That's basically what we do. I really haven't. See, where I come from, you don't even hunt an animal with a gun. We banned fox hunting for a reason. Now, Vibke, my wife, is German. Her attitude to this is completely different to mine. To her, I really am a Philistine. Well, a few years ago in Florida, I came home from work, and Jonas, my son, looked at me and said, hey, I'm going hunting with Nathan. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me, right? Of course, he didn't say that. And I said, what? And he said, yeah, I asked mom. Mom said it was okay if next weekend I go hunting with Nathan and Jeff. Well, Jeff and Tracy were really great friends of ours. We'd actually gone on multiple vacations with one another. They were just awesome people, apart from the fact that Jeff hunted. <laughs> and I look at Vipka, and I'm like, okay. So Jonas goes away for hunting. Wise man didn't challenge the decision of his wife. But folks, all weekend, I'm praying they wouldn't see a single deer. And true enough, he comes home at the end of the weekend. I said, how did it go, Jonas? More like, how did it go, Jonas? You know, you have to ask him kind of thing. Didn't really want to know. And he said, Dad, didn't see a single deer. And I went, amen, God still answers prayer. <laughs> and I looked and I said, well, no member of the Reese household has actually killed an animal in an act of violence then, have they? To which point, Vipka looked at me and said, yes, your dog has. And by the way, you like that venison that Jeff hunted the other week. <laughs> Philistine. It's been a little bit of a challenge for me. Is my way wrong? Is your way right? They're just different. But when they collide, what do you do? It's a pretty relevant topic, don't you think, right now, with our students, even in our schools in this area, being getting up and walking out and saying, people hear us, we're uncomfortable. What do we do? Another issue for me has been the lack of a solidarity principle when it comes to healthcare. I really am going there today, aren't I? 
Solidarity principle in healthcare has been really important to me. Now, what I mean by that is the solidarity principle is basically a unifying opinion, a feeling, a purpose, and interest among a group of people. And where I come from in Great Britain, there is that solidarity principle when it comes to healthcare. It's called the National Health Service. And my life has been radically altered by the solidarity principle in healthcare. Now, many of you know my story, and I'm going to read this because I really want to be understood, and I don't want to be misquoted or actually say something off the cuff that I'll later regret. I grew up in government-subsidized housing, and I, that meant that I was entitled to free school meals. And when my dad chose to abandon his responsibilities and leave my mom to raise a child on her own, I was not thrust into a different health system. We didn't need to visit different doctors because we no longer had health insurance from him. It was just as well because I needed a lot of medical help. There were hip surgeries and the care that made it possible for me to walk again. There were my ear issues, which made me, uh, meant I underwent numerous surgeries, both as a child and as an adult. By the age of 12, I had a file, folks, that was this thick. Yes, as I grew, I discovered the limitations with the British health system. It wasn't all good. I remember the day Vipka and I moved to Germany after about six months in Wales. I'd been seeing the ENT, the ears, nose, and throat doctor in the British health system for months. I had to go in every three or four months, and they would just kind of clean out my ears, and every time they would just do this, and they said, hey, when you move, you'll need to go to an ENT doctor over in Germany and uh, get that done. So within a week, I made the appointment, and I was straight in. And I went in, and he said, what can I do for you? And uh, the great thing is, he was educated in America, so he spoke English, so I didn't have to kind of stumble through with my German, which was awesome. Uh, which wasn't awesome, it was awesome that he spoke English. And I looked at the doctor and I said, hey, I've been going to the ENT doctor for many, many years, and they've told me that uh, I'm probably going to need surgery at some point, but um, th the fact is that my ear's too wet and so they can't do the procedure. And he said, uh, Mr. Reese, I don't know how to tell you this, so I'll show you it. And he got up from his desk, he walked over to a wall. On this wall, there was a giant picture of an ear in the inner part of an ear, and he said to me, Mr. Reese, the day your ear is dry will be the day that you go deaf. And I looked at him, I said, what? And he said, Mr. Reese, you need surgery. And the reason the national health system has not provided surgery for you is because it can only do a number of those surgeries every given month, any given year for the money side of it. And they wait as long as they can because the follow-up that is needed to do your surgery put so much stress on the system that it can't cope. Folks, in that moment, I felt kind of lied to. Within one week, I was basically had a date for surgery, and I had surgeries that have meant that I've got a hearing aid in on my right ear. So when I'm telling you about this solidarity principle, don't misunderstand me or mishear me. I know the limitations with my health system. But in all of this, I was never, ever made to feel second class for a situation that wasn't my fault. We moved to the States and uh, jumped into the American health system, and we were impressed. Never had any issues. It took us about two and a half years to figure out how it worked. Any of you with me on that one? <laughs> Everything was great until the day we became foster parents. And we welcomed these 
children, who know our biological children into our home. And, and just realize, just through a call of trying to make an appointment for these children, that these children were not able to visit the same doctors that I could. And folks, for the first time in my life, I actually saw a situation where organizationally people can feel second class. At least I thought back home. I was never made to feel like that. Why am I saying all of this? Read your Bible in Acts 9. When Tabitha died, who cried? Who cried? It was the widows. You see, the thought of her not being there caused them to send for Peter, who was three hours away by foot, 11 miles away. Now, the text tells us that we just read that she was washed for burial, but she hadn't yet been anointed for burial. That basically tells us that they had this hope that Peter could do something. Now, what's interesting is the previous story to this, if you look at it, we read Peter being used by God to heal a paralyzed man. Now, Peter had been instrumental in a number of miracles in the book of Acts, but there is no record of him bringing someone back to life. This was not a common feature of his ministry. Now, think about the context of this then. One woman made such a difference on these widows' lives that the thought of losing her caused them to seek Peter for something quite extraordinary. You see, when Tabitha died, people not only cried, they went through extreme lengths to bring her back. Here's my question. If this church closed, who would cry? Who would cry? And what lengths would the poor, the vulnerable, the marginalized, the faceless, the famous and everybody in between do to bring us back. Anthony Ashley Cooper, probably haven't heard of him. He was the seventh Earl of Shaftesbury. He lived in 1801 till 1885. And he was someone who worked tirelessly to improve the conditions of the poor and the needy in the arena of politics in London. He did all of this out of his Christian faith. He died. And when his coffin was being carried out of Westminster Abbey, a poor laborer in tattered garments with a piece of crepe paper kind of sewn on his sleeve was heard to shout, Our Earl has gone. God Almighty knows he loved us, and we loved him, and we shan't see the likes of him again. What a sad indictment on the Church of England that was. But is it any different today? Tom Rainer says that between eight and 10,000 churches close their doors in America every year. Here's the question, folks. Who's crying? Who's crying? And what lengths are the poor and the vulnerable, the least and the faceless 
doing to bring them back. Now, make no mistake about it. I believe that there are individual Christians in all of these churches who, when they pass, will be missed. I'm just not so sure that the same can be said of the organized church. Not today, anyway. And so I fear for the evangelical church in America because the bottom line is, I believe, that she appears more quick, uh, quicker to vocalize her rights than she is willing to embrace her responsibility. And I think the lesson that we're learning from Tabitha, the lesson that we need to learn in this day and age is we have to be quicker to practice our responsibility than we are to champion our rights. Now listen, I understand the legal ramifications, okay? If we don't fight for rights, we lose them. I get that. But what I do not get is how quick we are to champion our rights to carry, and I'm using that as a hold-all term, while ignoring our responsibility to care. Church, our young people are concerned. They are leaving their schools. They are voicing their disapproval. The right thing to do is to listen and to care, not to fight for rights. It's not popular. You know my email address if you don't agree. But I just want to show you where the Bible stands on this. The Bible says that the, first, the Christian's first response when it sees people in turmoil and trouble and struggling is to care and to think about rights afterwards. And even to use those rights as a means of caring for the least and the less. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 16. Acts 16, this is an interesting passage because here the mission of the church is now spreading into Europe. It's the story of conversion in the, in the city of Philippi. And when Paul was warned through the Holy Spirit <clears throat> not to go into Asia, excuse me, he was led into Europe, he was led to Philippi. And he gets into Philippi and as it was his custom, he would have looked for a synagogue in which to teach, but we believe that there wasn't one because Paul, the text tells us in Acts 16, actually goes outside of the city to look for a tree by the water, which was the Jewish place to pray. In other words, there weren't enough Jewish men to start a synagogue. So Paul goes there. As he's there, he spots a woman by the name of Lydia. Lydia is open to receiving the gospel. Paul prays with her. She becomes a follower of Christ. On the way back to Lydia's house, a slave girl, a demonized slave girl, cries out to Paul, and Paul delivers that girl from a demon, and then Paul is basically beaten as a result. This is where we read, pick up the story, is from verse 35. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with this order. So he's beaten and put in jail. Release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered you, Silas, and Silas to be released. Now, you remember when he was in prison, you remember what he did? He started to praise God, and he praised God, and they started to worship God, and the prison shook, all the, the chains fell off, and the jailer was about to kill himself, and what happens? He realizes that they're not gone. Paul shares the gospel with him. He comes to faith in Jesus. You remember the story? This is, this is the story. The magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave, you can go in peace. This is where it gets interesting. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens. In the text, it actually says earlier on, they thought they were Jewish citizens. They were Jews, but they're Roman citizens. And you threw us into prison. And now 
Do they want to get rid of us quietly? Absolutely not. No, he says. Let them come themselves and escort us out. Where does he want to go? Look at this. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. And Paul, after Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them, then they left. Now, let me put this together for you, okay? Verse 37, they beat us publicly and put us in prison without a trial. We want a police escort. Verse 39, they came to appease them and escorted them out. So in other words, Paul knew that the judges and the jailers didn't have the legal standing to punish them or to hold them. Here's the question. You ready for this? Why did he let them do it in the first place? He knew. He knew he was a Roman citizen. He heard them in the text think that they were Jewish citizens. He could have said right there, right then, hey, you can't do this to me. I'm a Roman citizen. You can't do this without trial, and you have no right to do this to me. But he didn't. Why? Because Paul knew that those followers of Jesus, that small church, Lydia, a slave girl, a Philippian jailer, and all of his family, needed all the help that they could get. They were mighty in faith, but they were small in number and often persecuted by the government. So instead of advocating for his rights at the beginning, Paul embraces punishment that he doesn't deserve. Does this sound anything like Jesus to you? And so rather than Pursuing this by suing the municipality for damages, he actually asks for an escort. And where does the escort take him? Right to the place where the first church on European soil was found. Paul, denying his rights, guaranteed the protection of that fledgling church. So the unspoken conversation goes like this. I leave quietly if you leave my friends alone. See, Paul risked his well-being and his personal safety to go to the mat for people. Slaves. Women. Jailers. Paul knew what he was entitled to as an apostle, as a Roman citizen, but he kept laying those rights down. Paul didn't lawyer up. Paul laid it down. You know what Jesus said? I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life away. Jesus said, greater love is no man than this. Paul has completely embraced Jesus' way of thinking, and that makes him compassionate. See, instead of advocating for his rights, Paul embraces the punishment that he doesn't deserve. In a situation where he's allowed to champion rights, when people need to be loved and cared for, he flips the script. You practice responsibility first. Erwin McManus is a, a brilliant 
line, he says this, the opposite of fear isn't courage, it's love. We live in a, in a nation where we are talking about gun laws and young people are voicing their concern. Act 16 is our script. We flip the script. We practice caring first. We listen first. God gave us two ears and one mouth. We live in a day where there's a lot of talk about health care. We practice caring first. We flip the script. For some of us, that, that embraces us to this whole idea of fear. Craig, if we do that, what will happen? McManus says this, look, the opposite of fear isn't courage. It's love. Isn't, uh, the opposite of fear isn't courage. It's love. Uh, put it, let's think of it this way. A child falls into a, a torrent of water. What do you do? Now, let's think about it like this. Your child falls into a torrent of water. Now, what do you do? Is there any hesitation? Is there any delay? There isn't, is there? And why? Has the water changed? Has the danger changed? Or has love made all the difference in the world? See, that's why love is not just a verb, folks. Because unless we've experienced the love of God in our hearts and personalized it and realized what that has meant, then all love will ever be is a verb. But when we've experienced the love of God in our hearts, then love, concern, compassion is the most natural thing in the world to do. And in that moment, we don't think about rights. We don't think about our life. We think about the plight of the one that's drowning. Are you seeing this? What I've discovered over the last decade in America is that American evangelicals are really passionate about two sacred texts. The first text that we're passionate about, rightly so, is the Constitution. The second text that we're passionate about in the ancient text is that of the Bible, but I want to tell you today that they don't both carry the same authority. Our Constitution, however unnecessary it may be to do so, can be changed. The Word of God can never, ever, ever be changed. And the, the Bible, this Bible, this sacred text, like the Constitution, gives us rights. But in the Bible, this right that we are given is called by the Apostle John the right to be called the children of God. And then he goes on, and so we are. That's the right that we have. Because of the love that God showed us in sending Jesus, even while we were far off, we now have the right to be called the children of God. But folks, the right to be called the sons and the daughters of God carries with it the responsibility to carry our cross. Jesus carried his cross for the sake of you and me, not for his own sake, 
Let's stop this endless chatter that, that, that we're carrying the cross because there's, oh, this is a cross I have to bear. Your cross isn't for you. Your cross is for someone else. A cross is for those that don't know Jesus. And Jesus says, listen, if we're willing to enter into the love of God and experience it, it changes the way we live. And it changes how we love. There was a brilliant uh, Christian from the country of India. He died in 1929. His name was Sundar Singh, a prolific writer. He was committed and convinced of the fact that India would never be reached as a nation simply through copying Western Christianity. And so, after he converted to Christ, he committed to kind of translating the gospel into that Indian culture. One of the things that he would do is he would basically journey from India over the Himalayan mountains into Tibet, and it's in the mountains in 1929 he's thought to have passed away. But one such journey, Singh was walking to Tibet with a friend of his, and as they were walking, they came across a man laying in the snow, and, and Singh looked at his friend and said, we need to stop and help him. His friend said, look, Sunda, this is such a challenging environment. If we do this, we may die. And he says, basically, for me to live is Christ, and for me to die is gain. His friend would have nothing to do with it. His friend carried on walking as Singh basically bent down, picked this man up, carried him over his body, and they walked, and they walked. Soon the heat from Singh's body started to revive that man, and he recovered. Many hours later, Singh and this, this man he picked up turned the corner, and Singh says he found his companion dead in the snow. This is what Singh wrote as a result of that experience. Those who determine not to put self to death will never see the will of God fulfilled in their lives. Those who ought to become the light of the world must necessarily burn and become less and less. By, dying self, by denying self, we are able to win others. And when Singh died, Indian believers cried. I'll say it again. Eight to 10,000 churches are closing their doors in America. Who cried for them? And what would it take to turn it around so that the least and those who feel overlooked and neglected are the ones that mourn. I think this is the biggest challenge in a post-Christian context. But the right to be called the sons and daughters of God does carry with it the responsibility to carry our cross. Singh once again said, from my, from my many years of experience, I can unhesitatingly say that the cross spares those who bear the cross. So what is our response to this message? To go out and do something? No. You can't do what you don't have. See, the result of a message like this is to realize love is not just a verb. Because in a critical situation where care is necessary, where it's necessary for us to lay down our rights to pick up our responsibility to care. If love isn't the motivating force, in that moment, we'll get it wrong. It's right there in a split second. And so the response to this message is for each of us to say, God, do I live and breathe each and every day knowing that you loved me so much that you sent Jesus to die in my place? 
do I, do I know that? Because friends, when we know that, that's where the motive to care across the barriers and across the boundaries is found. So church, for, for God's sake, for the church's sake, but also for the sake of the least and the less, love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. Because that's the only way that you will be able to love your neighbor as yourself.